0: You're listening to The Traveling Culturati, exploring the style and culture of travel with travel pro Javon Harley, exclusively on H-U-R Voices. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. And be sure to sign up for the newsletter, connect with us on social media, and join the Travel Club. You can do it all at TravelingCulturati.com. My guest today has created and published a brand new green book for today's black travelers. It's very different than the original green book. However, it provides a travel guide for the global African diaspora. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report gives us some wine culture. The wine god gives us the 411. But now, let's get into some travel news. National Geographic listed eight ways travel will change after the pandemic. What will travel look like in the future? They asked experts in the industry. With the decline in air travel from the pandemic, the classic road trip has become more popular in America. And with the coronavirus cases continuing to spike in America and abroad, there's a renewed commitment to sustainable tourism, to creative ways to globetrot from home. And so here's what authors, bloggers, and podcasters are navigating. Sustainability, that would be a driving force. One silver lining of the pandemic, consumers are doubling down on sustainability. The industry will respond with active measures to prioritize a healthy world over profit margins. The journeys will become more inclusive, and I'm adding, purpose-driven. Certainly with the Black Lives Matter movement, that has brought the issue of inclusive representation to light. And that includes the travel industry. We've done many shows talking about the exact topic. Small communities will play a bigger role and will seek quality over quantity. Now, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has released its winter outlook. And what does that mean? Well, for the third winter in a row, the southern and eastern United States may escape the season's bitter cold. The primary driver of the mild winter outlook is La Nina. It's the cooling of waters in the tropical Pacific Ocean, which historically has shaped weather patterns to favor cold, stormy conditions in the north and northwest and warm and dry conditions in the south and the east. TSA PreCheck will be expanded to foreign airports. That's right. TSA PreCheck currently is only in the United States, but they've gotten together with Global Entry, that's the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, to offer TSA PreCheck at foreign airports. They can apply for the program starting now, and that will mean that Americans with TSA pre-check can speed through those security points in airports outside of the United States. The airports must have the same security standards and protocols that the U.S. government requires from its own airports, including new COVID standards that the CBP and the TSA have put in place. Juneteenth is now recognized as an official state holiday in New York, commemorating the emancipation of the enslaved in the United States. It's official and it's a public holiday in the state of New York. Governor Cuomo signed legislation last week and passed. By the legislature back in July designating June 19th as Juneteenth. Cuomo said in a statement, the new public holiday will serve as a day to recognize the achievements of the black community, while also providing an important opportunity for self-reflection on the systemic injustices that our society still face today. The holiday commemorates June 19, 1865, when the enslaved in Texas finally got word of President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect on January 1, 1863. Three. On June 19, 1865, Union General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, to inform enslaved African Americans that the Civil War had come to an end and that they had been freed by Lincoln's proclamation. Yes, that was a whole year after it had already happened. Earlier this year, Cuomo issued an executive order recognizing Juneteenth as a holiday for New York State employees following civil unrest and protests. Protests Against Police, Brutality, and Systemic Racism. Well, let's meet the first black woman to represent the U.S. at the art world's biggest fair. Simone Leigh, whose large-scale ceramics explore black female subjectivity, will exhibit her work at the 59th iteration of the art world's most prestigious exhibition, The Venus Binale. Lay, whose works explore notions of beauty, strength, colonialism, and black womanhood, is the first African-American woman to hold the coveted position. Leigh, 52, works from her Brooklyn studio where she creates commanding larger-than-life ceramic sculptures that probe and celebrate the labor of black women. The Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, which is sponsoring the U.S. Pavilion at the Department of State's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, announced the artist's selection last week. Per a statement, Leigh previously received the Guggenheim Museum's Hugo Boss Prize which honors contemporary art's most innovative and influential figures and has led shows at the Hamer Museum, the New Museum, the Kitchen, and other major galleries. Lay tells the New York Times, I feel like I'm part of a larger group of artists and thinkers who have reached critical mass. And despite the really horrific climate that we've reached, it still doesn't distract me from the fact of how amazing it is to be a black artist right now. Tulsa is digging again for victims of 1921 race massacre. The city of Tulsa is beginning a second excavation to find and identify victims of the 1921 race massacre that left hundreds dead and destroyed an area that was once an affluent African-American community. The second excavation comes nearly a century after a white mob attacked a thriving business district and residential area in Tulsa, Oklahoma that was referred to as Black Wall Street, following exaggerated accounts circling around the city about an incident between a young black man and a white woman. From May 31 to June 1 of 1921, historians believe 300 people were killed and 800 more were injured, while white rioters robbed and burned businesses, homes, and churches. The two locations to be researched are in Oaklawn Cemetery in North Tulsa, where a search of remains of victims ended without success in July, and near the Greenwood District where the massacre took place. The excavation is expected to take up to one week, according to city officials. The earlier excavation was done in an area identified by ground-penetrating radar scans as appearing to be a human dug pit, indicative of a mass grave. It turned out to be a filled-in creek, according to Mayor G.T. Bynum, who first proposed looking for victims of the violence in 2018 and later budgeted $100,000 to fund it after previous searches failed to find victims. Bodies, if discovered, will not be disturbed. The excavation would stop and investigators would do what they do to identify them and determine a cause of death they would also make efforts to find any descendants, which is a project that could prove difficult, according to Bynum. Archeologists have identified two additional possible sites, and this is ahead of the 2021 100th anniversary of the event. Black history and culture attractions are still looking for corporate donors to match all the Black Lives Matter rhetoric They are saying the pandemic has made fundraising for museums all the harder in such tough economic times. But nearly five months after the killing of George Floyd and a summer filled with promises, black tourism attractions are still waiting for more than just lip service. This is according to an article in Skift. Skiff spoke with some of these attractions and the feeling is that many companies this summer who joined the Black Lives Matter activism with pinning tweets and Facebook posts and informative press releases, denouncing racism at the height of the protests yet for the many critics the surge of corporate activism was nothing short of performative lip service. Now nearly five months after the killing of George Floyd, Black History and cultural institutions in the United States that draw tourists from all over the globe say the support from donations has been anything but consistent. A 2018 Mandela research study claims that African Americans contribute a whopping $63 billion to the American travel and tourism economy and are more likely to travel to a location connected to their heritage. It states African-American history also attracts all cultural travelers, such as Germans, Japanese, and other American travelers. There's an African-American woman who's leading the charge for the great outdoors. Her name is Rue Map, and she's the co-founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro, whose tagline is Where Black People and Nature Meet. She heads this national not-for-profit organization with offices in Oakland, California and Washington, D.C. and oversees a carefully selected and trained national volunteer leadership team of nearly 90 men and women who represent 30 states around the United States. They share opportunities to build a broader community and leadership in nature. When asked, what are some of the unique challenges faced by African-Americans when they plan a day, a week, or a weekend, or a week of adventure? She replied, in addition to the regular items you need to consider when adventuring in the great outdoors, black people also need to wonder if they are going to be the only ones there. What are they driving past to get there? Confederate flags, political affiliations, etc. Once you are where you want to be, are people going to think you don't belong? We think about these things because they happen all the time. They happen to our leaders, and they have happened to me. I remember when I was followed by a white woman in Oakland, California Park. While taking families out to enjoy nature, the woman followed us through the park until the kids began to play in the dirt. and. She started to harass us, she claimed. We were bringing invasive species into the park. The incident brought so many levels of shame, embarrassment, and of not feeling welcome in nature. And these are not isolated incidents, she recalls. Rue Map was named a 2019 National Geographic Fellow which is a program to empower and elevate individuals from a wide range of backgrounds and experiences who have demonstrated leadership and excellence and provide them the opportunity to develop. She's interested in having a land-based headquarters where Outdoor Afro can facilitate outdoor recreation, skill building, and be a retreat of welcoming for everyone in the nature. For more information on Outdoor Afro, you can visit OutdoorAfro.com. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and Marty Lewis, creator of the ABC Travel Green Book. I'm Javon Harley, the Traveling Culturati on SiriusXM. 141 HUR Voices. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website. It's travelingculturati.com Also connect with me on social media and join the Travel Club. And now Javon's Travel Minute. On our Facebook group, we've been posting daily with the theme, Been There, Done That, with activities and destinations to share our experiences. One post was biking while traveling, and it brought back memories of a trip I took to South Africa with other travel professionals in 2018. On this trip... I really wasn't feeling the biking, probably because I wasn't prepared for it. And we did four biking excursions. One was fat tire biking on the beach in Camps Bay, another was a hybrid motorized bike along the coast of South Africa. We did city biking in Soweto and sidecar on a motorcycle on the byways of Cape Town. The latter Didn't require pedaling from me, so I was cool with that one. The most difficult was the adventure in Soweto. Soweto has some very steep hills that I hadn't recognized on my many trips to Soweto in a car or motor coach. But when I found my photo of me biking in South Africa, it brought back fond memories instead of the discomfort I felt at the time. I thought about riding on the beach and being amazed at how the fat tires had so much traction on the sand, the views along the beach, and the challenges navigating the different terrain the beach presented. The hybrid motorized bike was a brand new experience for me. You could pedal or you could add a little power. The power certainly helped going up those hills. The faster I pedaled, the more motorized power I got. We biked to a fabulous lunch at the one and only Hotel Cape Town. And since we didn't have to bike back, we could indulge. Going back to the most challenging one in Soweto, I walked the last leg up the steep Villa Cozzi Street. But again, after the fact, I saw parts of Soweto I had never seen before. In my sidecar, I had a special friend who joined me, the driver's dog. He was a friendly mixed breed who occasionally rested his head on my shoulder. And when we stopped along the byway, we snapped some great photos with a gorgeous sunset backdrop. And when I returned home, I realized that I had lost weight. (laughs) Traveling, it leaves you speechless. Then it turns you into a storyteller. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Do you remember or have you heard of Victor Hugo Green's The Negro Motorist Green Book, commonly called The Green Book? That was first published in 1936 as the Negro Travel Guide. Well, my guest today has created a brand new book and guide for today's traveler. Marty Lewis is president of the Black Travel Alliance and creator of the ABC Travel Green Book. The number one resource connecting travelers to the African diaspora globally. She's a digital disruptor who is immensely in love with all things travel. She strives to change the narrative by advocating for travelers that represent different demographics across multiple platforms. Her mission is to change the face of tourism forever so that we all feel represented and see ourselves reflected. Well, hello, Marty, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, how are you today? I am great. Thank you so much. You know, this is such exciting news. I have been a traveler, oh, since I was a teenager, but I've been in the travel business for more than 30 years. So this is such a welcome surprise for someone like myself, a veteran, and I'm sure you can understand the fights that we've had to see ourselves in travel. So first all, thank you for the ABC Travel Green Book. What was your inspiration to create a guide for black travelers today?
1: I avid traveler myself, I kept having these moments where I was in a different country and seeing people who looked like me in places I would have never thought like uh, Honduras or like Amsterdam. And I was like, if I didn't know they were here and I consider myself an avid traveler, I need other people to know, not only so that we can celebrate our culture together, but so that we can help patronize some of these businesses so we can understand their history and their culture from their perspective, especially since it was left out of the history books and you won't find it in their museums, but also so we can just break bread and have a different type of experience with people who we can connect with because we look like them. and so knowing what the Green Book was to African Americans between the 1930s and 1960s. I wanted to create a new one with an international spin on it so that it was still that same type of guide to let you know where you can go, where you can eat, where you can stay in Black-owned accommodations and restaurants. So that was my inspiration for creating the new version, the modern-day version of the Green Book.
0: And it's so much needed because so often when we look at publications we don't see ourselves in those publications even when it's a destination that is predominantly black (laughs) we don't see ourselves in these publications how does it differ from the original green book other than of course the time period
1: yeah so initially when Victor Hugo Green was creating the green book it was right at the time where african-americans were becoming automobile owners so before that we didn't really have our own cars part of the reason was because white car salesmen wouldn't sell us cars i mean it wasn't necessarily that we didn't have enough money to buy them but once a man named homer b roberts who was in kansas city started selling black people cars and he would give them the loan to give back to himself his own business so that they can actually travel we started being able to go up and down you know route 66 and Victor Hugo Green needed, understood the need for us to stay safe when doing that. So his is only for the United States, mine is for the world, so it's globally. It's now on six out of seven continents because nobody lives in Antarctica, but if there was a black person in Antarctica, I would be able to tell you about them. But since there's not, I can tell you about all the black people on the other six continents. And so mine explores the African diaspora globally instead of just the African diaspora within the United States. And it still goes through listings like his does, where it goes by continent, country, and city in alphabetical order. But also what Victor Hugo Green did that I have not done is, he also showed you non-black businesses who still allowed you to come there, who still was supportive of the black community. Mine is strictly black-owned. You will not find any other type of establishment in the book. It's all black-owned worldwide so those are some of the differences the similarities of course you know i'm coming out with a new edition every year just as he did as businesses open and close so yeah i followed his methods as much as possible but it's a new spin on something that was incredible from the 30s
0: through the 60s. And some of the needs then that the guide presented was a need for safety. As a Negro motorists called during that time, needed to know where it was safe. I mean, if you've been looking at Lovecraft Country, country you, you understand indeed. the sundown towns and all of these things, which that book and guide really helped you along with. And it was so much for a need of safety. And that was right. one of the questions, really, that people have presented today as far as is that even still necessary today, especially when you're talking about the United States? Do we still need to know where it's safe for black travelers to travel?
1: Absolutely. Sundown towns are still alive and well. Um, there's no places you cannot go that. Unfortunately, as a black person, it's not okay for you to stop there still, even in the year 2020, which a lot of people are always like, oh my gosh, we can't believe it. And I'm like, no, believe it, honey. We experience more racism here in America than we will when we go abroad. But my Green Book additionally will tell you some of the things you might experience when you go abroad. And the thing about it is we have to do that for the simple fact that since the black travel movement really, really kicked off in about 2010, Black people are going to places they have never been before, which means the people who inhabit those spaces have never seen black people before. So it's not necessarily safety, although sometimes it is, But it's also just being aware of your surroundings. They've never seen somebody with your hair. They've never seen somebody with your skin color. So, yes, they might stare, but understand the stare is not malicious. Understand the stare is not with intent to harm you. Or understand that the stare is malicious. And understand, you know, the the stare is with intent to harm you because they don't want you here. So, you know, as you go through different parts of the book, you will get to places where I tell you, You need to be aware and alert when you go to these places because there's only a small community of black people here. A black man lost his life here two years ago due to racial tension. Or I let people know when I go to Iceland, you know, I was walking down the street and somebody called me a monkey. And I didn't even realize they were talking to me because I'm so oblivious to the fact that I would have to experience racism still in a country that wasn't America. So I do still give those accounts. So black people understand what's happening, even when they're going international somewhere. It's really, really important to understand that. And that's why the Green Book is so significant, too, because if you do have a bad experience abroad, I want to be able to tell you the community you can go to where you can find people who look like you so you can feel safe. So you can see somebody who looks like you. You know you can connect with them, even if you don't speak the same language. So that's another reason that it's super important, even with international travels as well, Just to know, okay, you experienced something like this in a part of Brazil, well, let me tell you where the part of Brazil where people look like you are so that you can feel a little bit more safe while you're traveling abroad.
0: Absolutely. I didn't have a word hurled at me, but I saw it on the side of a building in Iceland. I'm driving along and I see in, but the word is spelled out, go home. And I thought, oh, okay, we're doing that (laughs) in Iceland. You know, so I understand exactly what you're saying and what those needs are. And even if it relates to the culture of that country and how that race relation plays out in another country. Why do you feel that black travelers need the ABC travel book? I know a lot of the things that you've already said, but one that will make sure that they get it in their pocket and say, you know what, I really need this to travel along.
1: One thing about the black travel movement in the past 10 years is that black people are getting out a lot more now, and it's because they see other people out. So you have families where people who are now millennials This is the first person who's gone out of the country, right? So this inspires and encourages black travelers to go outside of their comfort zone and explore the rest of the world and what the world really, really has to offer them. And they can do that with the book. As people, you know, are on social media and they see these beautiful black people taking photos in these beautiful black places, they may not know how to get there, but they say, I want to go there. And the book helps guide them to those exact spots. What I'm hoping that it does is sparks a new movement within the black travel movement where people go out and they get their passports and they want to see something outside of what they are normally used to.
0: In putting everything together, how long was your labor of love and gathering the resources that found themselves in the guide?
1: Yeah, so honestly, if it wasn't for COVID, (laughs) <laughs> if it wasn't for COVID, and I would say the unfortunate deaths, Maude Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, I would probably still be working on the book. I went through many phases of this book. Some where I just was like, nope, I don't want to do it. Others where I was like, you know what, nope, stop. Others where I was like, I want to do it, but I'm just not motivated. And then COVID happened, and it caused us all to sit down. Now, you got to remember, I work in the travel industry. I'm a travel influencer and a diversity and travel consultant. So... I was on the road 275 out of 365 days a year. And so when COVID happened, I had to sit myself at home, (laughs) something that I hadn't normally done. And I had to be okay with the four walls that I was living in. And COVID has allowed a lot of us to finish some passion projects. And I remember at the beginning of COVID, I was talking to uh, one of my best friends and told him, I'm not motivated to finish the Green Book. And he was like, don't worry, you know the exact moment." when you should finish it and he said this right around maybe the year and a half mark i had been working on this and then george floyd happened and everybody posted those black squares on blackout tuesday standing in solidarity saying black lives matter and i was like first of all how dare you because you're saying this now but you weren't saying this pre-george floyd and because i've worked with you in the travel space i don't believe you But then I saw something happen that had never happened before. And that was a celebration of the black culture and black businesses. And something went off in my mind and said, the time is now. Now, I didn't want to be tone deaf because I said, well, why would you release a travel book in the midst of a pandemic when nobody can travel? And I said, that's exactly when you release it, when everybody has the time to stop and listen and hear what you have to say and realize that when they are ready to travel again, You have now given them the perfect guide to be able to do that, and not only do that, but patronize black businesses along the way, but actually create their trips based off of a guide that you gave, and especially because you told them that there's an African event that happens amongst the Afro-Turkish community every October, and now people are going to Turkey in October just to participate in this. And I was like, the time is now. So I made the release date, the two-year anniversary of when I started it, which is August the 23rd. And it came out. And ever since then, I've been hitting the ground running. Actually, August the 4th, I was hitting the ground running. And ever since then, I've gotten so much love from everybody. Well,
0: you said something very poignant about COVID. And I remember that we were all saying maybe this wasn't. 2020, as we saw it, the year of vision, the year of clarity. And I thought to myself, just about a month or so ago, maybe it is, maybe it gave us not the way in which we wanted it, but it gave us the time to sit with ourselves and to really focus on what is important.
1: That's exactly right. There's so many silver linings. And I tell people all the time, 2020 has been the best year of my life. I know we were sitting at home. But as far as my career, this is when it took off. You know, everything I had on my vision wall has come to pass. Fantastic. I didn't even know at the time exactly what that consisted of. (laughs) So I'm more than grateful.
0: Yes. What did you discover during this process about the travel industry?
1: Well, because I'm a diversity and travel consultant, I already knew that the travel industry was not necessarily a place that welcomed our stories and, you know, welcomed, you know, our history because the travel industry is the one that leaves our history out. But what I realize is that some people are serious about allyship and it's not just something that they thought they can turn on and turn off. And I say that because the overwhelming amount of response I got from my colleagues who weren't black about the book, the overwhelming response I got from my colleagues who weren't black, who bought the book and not only bought the book, but then went back to their thousands and thousands of followers and also encouraged them to buy the book was incredible. I mean, these are people who I didn't even think I would have have reached to, you know? I'm a small influencer, I'm a nano influencer and all of them made sure that their community knew about my book and really helped me sell the book. And so the travel industry in general also has been really, really accepting of the book has made sure to get black writers now to tell our stories, have made sure to feature it on their platform, I couldn't have asked for better support. And so I think finally, the travel industry is ready to make a change. And this is something that I've been preaching for the past three years with the name that I've made for myself in the industry, but now it's finally happening. And I'm proud of that. I'm happy to have sparked some of that change.
0: Absolutely, and we're proud of that for you and going back to the why now because it is the year of 2020 because it is covid and we have time to really stop look listen and feel so george floyd was really the catalyst sometimes a movement needs a catalyst to spring it yeah. forward and sometimes it's not a positive thing sometimes it's based on strife and So here we are. And yes, I'm loving what I'm seeing in the industry now. And the 30 plus years that I've been in the industry, I've never seen this much dialogue, this much imagery with black Americans, with the black or African diaspora globally, with any of that. Was there something different that you discovered or what did you discover about black travelers in this process?
1: that they're ready to get out and go. One thing that I knew is that if we don't know, we won't go. But when you tell them a place or somebody is there, they go. So I remember on the Madness Tribe earlier this month, because it's Black History Month in the UK, Ireland, and Amsterdam. And I remembered that I posted about Barack Obama Square in Money Gold, Ireland, right? And so many people were so shocked it was there, not realizing that, you know, he's part Irish. and They're very, very proud of him. And after I said that, I saw people actually turn up there and we can't even really travel to Ireland like that. And I only posted it two weeks ago. So, you know, if you tell them, they will go. And so they are very, very ready for a guide like this because they're looking for new places to explore. So Like I said, just all the love that I've gotten from so many people in the black travel community also, you know, speaking to the OGs, the people who had the actual original Negro motorist green book and actually talking to me about it and wanted to collaborate with me on the next version and talking to people like the sharer cottage who were in the original green book and then who was in the green book today. Like it's just such an impactful and powerful moment, moments, moments, moments that I keep having because people are appreciative and it's literally just sharing the knowledge.
0: How did you find all of these places?
1: It's a multitude of things. So some of them is I've been there. Some of them is word of mouth. Some of them are Facebook groups. You know, if you look up brothers and sisters in Kuwait, brothers and sisters in South Korea, black expats in Ecuador, sisters of New Zealand and Australia, you know, black women in Spain. And so I became a part of these groups. And I've been in more than a year now where I would just monitor. I would see what businesses were opening. I would see what businesses are closing. I would see what events they were having. And I would take note of it. I would ask questions. And I say to people all the time, Instagram and Facebook really rewarded me with their algorithms because if I like, you know, a braiding shop in Brisbane, they show me a nail shop in Sydney. And if I like the nail shop in Sydney, you know, they show me the African Film Festival, in queensland so it was like oh so now you know whereas i normally wouldn't know all of these black things in australia because i'm not from there instagram and facebook their algorithms would reward me when i liked something and when i started following a page so that way i was able to see not only who the major players were in terms of the black community but what events they had and what spaces they used and you know what they liked and what type of music they listened to So that really helped me as well but the stuff that's in the book you cannot find on google Google and Yelp have not been able to necessarily identify black-owned businesses on their platforms. They have the new buttons there, but that doesn't mean people are pushing them. So my resource can tell you things the search engines can't. And I'm grateful for that. Now, I would love to partner with them to help do better so that the rest of the world will know. But yeah, I'm proud that I can tell you things that are not easily found. And that's one of the reasons that I tell people, because they ask me, they say, well, you really focus on international instead of right here in the United States, do you have a reason why? And I told him, yes, because when you type in Google Black-Owned Oakland, there's tons of lists that come up. But when you type in Google Afro-Ecuadorians, you can't find anything, you know? And I said, that's the difference right there. Like the book, I wanted to make sure it was things that you couldn't find on your own because what other reason would you need my resource if you could find it on your own? So I'm proud of the research that went into it. And the work that I've done to be able to bring this knowledge to the greater population.
0: I'm really excited that you are working on more books or that there will be a series. How do you see that playing out as far as areas of focus?
1: So really what happened also is that I self-published. So when you self-publish, you can't have a lot of pages or else they continue to take money from you. So my book is only 171 pages. So there were certain things that I left out. I was like, okay, well, for certain reasons. So for, like, one, America on its own is a book on its own. Africa on its own is a book on its own. But Africa is 90% owned by foreigners. It's not owned by black people. So I really had to sign partnerships with the tourism boards from the 54 different countries in Africa and say, I need your help identifying black-owned businesses in your countries." For one, I do not speak the language. But secondly, it's not easy to find because, you know, depending on whichever country colonized the African country, that's what they speak and their great grandkids and grandkids are the ones who own the business. So if I go to Angola, you know, they speak Portuguese. And not only that, the Portuguese are the ones who own the restaurants or who own the actual hotels. So it would take me more time to be able to really populate things like that. But I'll definitely do an area of focus on Central and South America and then an area of focus on Africa where more than likely they'll be their own books. But also, I want to launch the app, which is currently under development. There's so many aspects to my app (laughs) that go into it. So it'll be a while before it comes out. But the app will be able to be the full, as full as you can be, listings of black-owned businesses worldwide that pertain to the travel industry. But because I self-published, like I said, my book could only be under 200 pages in order for me to still get anything in terms of royalties so yeah i mean barnes and noble and amazon is great when it comes to self-publishing but the amount of money that i get for selling a book at 24.99 is not even close to 24.99 so i had to keep it limited but it was good because then that means there's more for people to know and there's more time also to add new things to the book and to really go into depth like i want to in certain places like the continent of africa
0: now you're also president of the black travel alliance tell us about that
1: Mm -hmm. yes the black travel alliance is founded by 17 black content creators journalists photographers videographers and influencers in the travel space me and my colleagues are part of a facebook group that's called brown and black travelers at travel conferences because we are the ones that you see that look different when you go to popular travel conferences like a TBEX or like a Women in Travel Summit or like a IBM in Germany or a WTM in London. And we were appalled at Blackout Tuesday with the amount of travel brands that posted that Black Square because not only did they not work with us, when they did, they didn't pay us as much as our white counterparts. We didn't get the same type of speaking opportunities that our white counterparts got. So we wanted to create something that held the industry accountable so that they can be exactly who they said they were going to be because it wasn't who they were showing to be on June 2nd, 2020. So we built this alliance based off of application, accountability, and alliance, and that is the Black Travel Alliance. So not only are we there to give resources and the network to other Black travel professionals, we're there to help give them everything they need to be the best in the industry that they could be, but to have the same opportunities our white counterparts can. We're there to help brands who have decided that they are allies understand what marketing schemes they need to have so they can be more inclusive we are committed to changing the industry we're committed to keeping our foot on the gas we will not let people forget about who they said they were we will not let people take their black square down we will not let our trauma be people's trend but we will hold the industry accountable it's about time that they did what they said they were going to do
0: how do we get the abc travel green book
1: Yes, you can buy it both on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. If you are outside of the U.S., Australia, or Canada, please look at your local Amazon for listings. It's on both places, both paperback and as an ebook. That's how you can find it. You can find us on social media at ABC Travel Green Book. And the website is abctravelgreenbook.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, Marty Lewis, thank you so much again for joining me today. What an honor and a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: When we come back, I've got the culture report. I'm Javon Harley, the Traveling Culturati on Sirius XM 141. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. Check it out. And while you're there, follow us on social media and join the travel club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report on Wine. Known around Harlem as the self-proclaimed wine god, Moselle Watson is a certified sommelier who educates black people on wine. With his years of experience buying wines, For some of New York City's greatest wine shops, he founded Wines by Moselle, an educational wine home delivery service. Well, hello, Moselle, and welcome to Traveling Culturati.
2: Hello, hello, how are you?
0: I am great. I came across an article written on you, and I was really excited about that because... Anyone who is educating Black folks on experiences that are global are of interest to me. So what was your inspiration for becoming a Sommelier?
2: It wasn't planned originally. My first job was at McDonald's when I was 17 and I left that at 18 to work at White Castle because they paid $10 to work overnight. And while working overnight, I was falling asleep at patties on the grill. I was like, I can't do this. So the next morning I went to look for a job. I walked into 67 wine shops and asked them if they were hiring. They was like, yeah, why can't you start? And I was like, right now. So once I started working in the wine shop, it was just new to me, the world. And I, and I got promoted to, to the shipping department and by the shipping department, there's a refrigerator. And the refrigerator holds all the cold wine. And customers would come back there daily and was like, hey, could you recommend a wine? <laughs> and me not knowing anything about wine or not understanding how to read the label or anything, I would just recommend S-Select Chardonnay because it was the only great Chardonnay that I could pronounce correctly so I was like oh yeah grab the of Chardonnay grab the Hetzel of no, regardless of what they wanted I will just recommend that and the owner heard of me he was like yeah you can't do that you can't <laughs> what you're talking about if they are going to recommend these wines so he bought me this book called the Windows on the World by Kevin Zorali and it pretty much just changed my life it opened up the wine world to me and broke it down to a simple form where I could understand and realize what I was recommending to people at the time I wasn't old enough to drink." I was only eighteen, twenty, nineteen. But I could talk to you all about what a Chardonnay is supposed to have or what a Soviet block is supposed to have. And then once I became of age, I just had this knowledge that I needed to do something with. So I became a, a key holder, a manager at a few places, and one store offered to pay for me to go to school, become a sommelier. And then I mean, free education. So I was like, absolutely. So I, so that's how I, that's how I became a sommelier. It wasn't planned. So once I became a sommelier and I'm working in a wine shop, I was like, there's no wine shops in Harlem, where I'm from, there's only liquor stores. Like every other corner you'll see a liquor store. You don't see a, a wine shop, it was, it was weird. So the first thing I wanted to do was put a wine shop in Harlem, which I did. And then the one I was I was like, all right, I'm here to teach and my people to know what they're putting in their body. Like too many people just drink Moscato or, or Hennessy just because of the brand or because it's sweet. And it's just, it's, you know, it's demonstrative to us because it's a lot of sugar, it's a lot of food coloring. And we, of all people, suffer most from diabetes and sugar deficiencies. So I'm like, I have to change that. If anybody could change it to be me, because I have the information. I have uh, the community on my side. They will trust what I say because I'm one of them, opposed to someone else. And, and uh, it just became my mission to teach my people about wine and what they put in their
0: body. I think if you're willing to explore, you can change your palate. I know my palate changed when I first started drinking wine, dare I say, it was champagne. but yeah, with that exploration and just trying different things, as you become older and wiser, in general, your palate can change and grow. So what are the main varietals? I know there are many.
2: So there's like a, a Magnificent 7. So as far as the white wine, there'll be Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, and then as far as red, there's Merlot, there's Cabernet. There's the Noir, and there's Cabernet Sauvignon. And the reason why it's, it's an odd number, like seven, is because Capfram and Sauvignon Blanc were generically cross-breeded together to make Cabernet Sauvignon. So white grape and a red grape were blended together to make what we all know as Cabernet Sauvignon, and that's why there's like seven of four to six. These use varieties planted all over the world. You can find them in South Africa, you can find them in the United States, you can find them in France, you can find them in Italy. But the true identity of like where the wine originated, it's, it goes back and forth. There's some people who claim that it, it originated in France. There's some people who claim that it originated in Egypt. There's history that can both, so it, it depends on you know what you want to believe. But these seven grapes are planted widely across the world. With that being said, they all have different characteristics based on where it's planted. For example, Chardonnay planted in the United States will usually have a creamy, sort of buttery texture to it because California or United States winemakers generally age their wines in oak. That gives it a creamy texture to it. So for, I would take a Chardonnay from California and a Chardonnay from France. So it, all those are seem great night and day as far as what the winemaker does to it.
0: So how do you discover what you like? How do you find your personal taste?
2: Well, the easiest way, that I would say, is to drink a lot. The more you drink, the more you can build sort of... a a repertoire of, even if you don't like it, to still drink it to understand reasons why you don't like it. And even if you like something, don't constantly drink that but understand why you like it.
0: If you're at a restaurant and you want to try something but you don't really know what to try, what should you look for in those kind of tasting notes? Or if you're visiting a vineyard or a wine estate and you want to do yeah. some tasting?
2: Depending on the restaurant because they may not train exactly, but I would say always trust the sommelier on that and just ask them what wine pairs well with the dish I'm having. That way it can eliminate it tasting nasty. Even if you don't like the wine, but if it pairs correctly with the food, you'll learn to appreciate the wine, you'll learn to appreciate what it's going for the food and how it's changing your palate. If you go to a vineyard and do a tasting, don't go there expecting to the taste five wines. You're going to taste between 10 and 25 different wines, but it's going to be a, a range, and they usually start to as sweet as possible as a vineyard could be to as dry and full body as a vineyard could go. And you can, from doing that range of tasting, you can pick out what you like about this, what you don't like about that. And it's all about building a sort of like a flavor profile, or like if you're painting the picture, just completing the palette, getting all your color schemes in order before you throw it on a chalkboard.
0: And what are those basics in tasting? Because we see people doing different things to but, taste wine. So what are those and what do they mean?
2: The patient's success tasting wine is, if you have it in the correct wine glass, to swirl the wine. And when you swirl the wine, the why people use to swirl the wine is to allow oxygen to get inside the glass of wine to open up the wine. So oxygen can be a plus and a minus to wine. So imagine something being bottled up tight and all its flavors and all its smells are confined to a small area. And once you open it, you allow oxygen to get in to open up the wine, to have it stretch its legs, to have it show off the smells, its taste, its body. And that while it's doing that, too much oxygen can kill the wine. It can extract too much taste and flavors from it, and then the wine starts to taste more like vinegar because all its flavors and taste and characteristics have been sucked out of through the wine through oxygen. So the first step, you pour wine into your glass, you swirl it to allow oxygen to get in. The second step is to smell it. You smell the wine solely to just get an idea of what flavors or what characteristics the wine is showing you. So you sniff it and get an idea of a uh, blueberry, raspberry, black carat, just just all through your nose. And lastly, you taste it. And all the tasting part, which is the most important part, but it also confirms what you sort of smell. It may, it may not confirm it, but it gives you an idea of what you smell and also have you, you know, taste it, actually, actually taste it. You taste it. you swallow it around your mouth, The swallows you just swallow to you give your whole mouth the flavor, the culture palate, and everything that the wine has to offer. And lastly, you swallow whether you like the wine or not, but that's, that's how you taste wine correctly.
0: Okay, now you mentioned earlier that if you're at a restaurant, you can ask a sommelier. Is mm-hmm. that part of what the restaurant offers? Does that come at an additional cost?
2: Not an addition to cost. Every restaurant, every good restaurant, has a sommelier on staff that can tell you about the wine. Otherwise, they don't know what they're doing. They're just buying whatever the company telling them to buy if their wine list is not correct.
0: I think one of the things people think about when they think of a sommelier is that you would only call one over if you're buying a pricey bottle.
2: No, it's, it's the sommelier job is there just to sell wine, regardless of the price, but for you to feel comfortable with the wine as long with your meal. And this is why you feel so comfortable with it, because it's here... Perfectly, but opposed to just winking at yourself and not knowing, and then you end up drinking champagne with spaghetti, and that's not how it's supposed to go.
0: Now, does age matter or not?
2: There are wines who are made to be drank immediately, and there are some wines that are made to be drank years from now. So, to find that balance depends on how much you pay for the wine, depends on the, the producer, depends on the winemaker, depends on the region it came from. But 90% of the wines made today are made to be drank within the first three years. And I I can tell you a secret. For example, white wine has an age on it. So let's say it's 2020. Right now, the only white wine we all should drink or we all should consume is from 2018 to 2020. Any white wine from 2017 and and back is too old. It passes prime. It will taste like vinegar. It will taste water down. It will taste like black flavors. All the fruit flavors you're supposed to get will be more like dry through, it'll taste more like a sherry, which isn't what you wanna do. So age is important if you're doing white wine or if you're not drinking an expensive red that's supposed to be aged,
0: that's where it matters. The point that you're just bringing up, I think is very valid for anybody who's buying wine and they have it at home and how, <laughs> how long they should keep it as well as how should they store it.
2: Once you buy wine, you wanna take it home, if you open that bottle of wine, regardless white, red or whatever, once you put your cork back inside that wine, put it in the refrigerator, you have approximately two days from the time you put it in the refrigerator to the next time you should open it and drink it. Now, if you put it in there and you know, one day went by, you want to open it and you want to drink it, you try to put it back, the moment you re-put the cork in the second time, that wine is growing. Because again, as I said before, oxygen is the plus or the minus the wine. The more oxygen you expose wine to, the more it extracts with color. So the more, for example, like I said with the white wine, I opened. I pour myself a glass today. I put it in the refrigerator. It has oxygen now stuck in the bottle, just attacking the wine. But it's now that it's in the refrigerator, it's slowing down the aging process or the maturing process. But as soon as I take it out, it's like it speeds it up immediately now. Because as the wine starts to come back to room temperature from being in the refrigerator, that process is now in hyperdrive. At that moment, I have to finish it, or if I put it back in the fridge, it doesn't matter. I might as well just start cooking with it because the wine won't taste good.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And as I said earlier, Moselle founded Wines by Moselle, an educational wine home delivery service. You can check it out at winesbymoselle.com. That's M-O-Z-E-L. Check it out. And he's basically your sommelier at home. So thank you again so much for joining me today. What a pleasure. No
2: problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that's it for the show today, but I'll be back the same time next week. And remember, wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. To find out more about the Traveling Culturati, visit TravelingCulturati.com. Follow me on social media and join the travel club. Special thanks to editor Ray Diaz, studio producer Diamond Sidnor, video producer Howard Little, executive producer Jean Harley, and to you, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Traveling Culturati with travel pro Javon Harley. Tune in next week at the same time on HUR
2: Voices.